no matter how big your company gets, if you don't have a strong foundation, it won't stand up for too long without suffering some losses. When we're starting up, we don't always pay attention to legal structures or to tax legislation. Entrepreneurs tend to go with the fastest, easiest, or cheapest way to get the business off the ground. I too made this mistake. It ended up costing us approximately $100 million in company value. That's why I've invited Dan Green, partner at Gunderson Detmer, to talk to us today. Gunderson is a global law firm specializing in tech. They're one of the most active law firms in Brazil and Latin America, working with venture-backed startups and VCs. In this episode, Dan shares specific advice about setting up or flipping your structure to raise capital from international investors, what these investors look for during due diligence, how to manage intellectual property, vesting in your cap table in the early stages, and more. I found this talk super useful, and I think you will too. Unfortunately, the audio is a bit spotty at times, although it doesn't compromise the interview. But if there are any parts you don't understand, you'll find links to the transcripts in the description. My name is Brian Reckworth, and this is Latitude Podcast. You know, if we can start off just by maybe sharing with the entrepreneurs, when is the best time, you would say, to set up an international legal structure to fundraise from those institutional investors? Yeah, it's a great question. It's a question we grapple with every day, every week. And I think um, it requires a certain amount of foresight and a little bit of a crystal ball. The more thought you put into the process early on, the easier it will become later on and and you know, you'll be able to save a whole host of money and headache if you do it right from the get-go or you, you at least know when you're going to do a flip. I usually use the a metric of, you know, you're raising a couple million dollars from an institutional fund or an international investor who's sophisticated enough to value an international structure. For Latin American entrepreneurs today, what basically means is one of a couple of different alternatives. Cayman as a holding company, a Delaware C, or in certain cases, a Delaware C corporation, which is the vehicle that 99% of US uh, entrepreneurs use. And to answer that question about which of those three paths you, you go down, you kind of have to answer in your own mind as a founder, how, you know, who am I raising from? How much am I raising in total from here to exit? What type of exit do I expect if I have that crystal ball? And, you know, where are my operations going to be? And with those four questions, you get a lot of guidance in that move forward. There are some founders, Oscar, Danny at Corner Shop are a good example. With Corner Shop, when we founded, when we funded, um, got them off the ground in 2015, you know, that was their third or fourth startup. So they knew exactly what they wanted to build. They knew who they were going to fundraise from. We set them up with a Cayman holding company on day one, but they're the minority. Most founders are either, you know, they're scrappy. They're trying to save money in the early stages. They set up the basic minimum entity that's needed. Oftentimes it's a limitada in, in, in Brazil or a, a SaaS in Colombia, and they get some traction there. And then they reach the stage six, 12 or more months down the road that they have to do the flip. Um, and then that's where, you know, a fund like us, a firm like us can come in to help guide them through that flip and fundraising process. What are the, what are the challenges in a flip when you can't really raise money directly into an, a limitada very effectively or SAS in, you know, in Colombia? 
So what is, what is it required for the flip? How more or less, how long does it take? What's involved in, in making that happen? Yeah, it's predominantly tax driven. So once you've isolated, once you've answered the question of where I'm going, what's the new holding company going to look like? Let's just assume for this purpose, it's going to be a Cayman entity uh, with an LLC and a local subsidiary. Once you've solved that, which usually takes, you know, one to two weeks in most circumstances, then the, the next process is tax planning. What's the most tax efficient way to go from point A, my local structure, to point a holding company? That varies dramatically on a jurisdiction or country by country basis and also depends on how um, mature your company is and how high value your company is. Generally speaking, the earlier you do the flip in a company's life cycle and the lower the value is of the company, the, the easier it is to do that flip. Where flips can get complex and hard is this company's been around five years. It's, it's profitable. It's you know, raising money at a 40 million pre and it's got 30 shareholders on the cap table. All of those factors can determine it's gonna be a pretty complex process as opposed to you know, flipping a six month old company that's raised half a million in safes from four investors. Fundamentally, it's a tax, it's a local tax question. And by local, I mean local at where the country of operations, so Brazil, Colombia, or et cetera. You need to have a really good local tax advisor and you need to have a really good international law firm like us or, or, or others involved so you can, you can do that process effectively. Generally speaking, flips can take overall from start to finish anywhere between two weeks on the really fast side to two or more months if it's, if it's complex. So it's kind of further along you are in your process with your company, uh, you know, in terms of your operation. If you've got a company that's been around for five years operating for a long time, you're obviously gonna have a lot more cleanup and a lot more things to kind of corral to, to be able to have a clean kind of flip and then a, a clean structure for an investor to, to put money into. That's exactly right. Yeah. And, and as part of this process, the investor, as you're saying, is going to look to do a legal health check. They're going to do due diligence, legal, financial, customer, et cetera. One of the aspects of the legal due diligence is, am I investing in a company that's got a whole bunch of tax liabilities from this flip? And even if they, the investor aren't going to inherit those liabilities, they don't want the founders, they don't want you, Brian, as a founder to be you know, saddled with millions of dollars of tax liability that could, you know, bite you in the future when there's an exit. No one ends up in a good place and that if that happens. So they want to make sure that the the flip has been done effectively from a tax perspective. They want to make sure the IP, the intellectual property of the company is very clearly owned by one entity within that holding company structure, um, that there's clear what we call chain of title that there aren't going to be that classic example of disgruntled former founder, disgruntled former employee who comes out of the woodwork right on the eve of an exit and says, part of the IP or I own part of the cap table. Sure, so sure. there's a lot of um, integrity that goes into that process and making sure you've done it effectively. I would say that, you know, sometimes you'll see, I see it less today, but I've been doing this for you know close to 15 years and I've seen all sorts of variants on the theme of, hey, my buddy is telling me I've got to focus on tax efficiency. Yes, that's correct. He's telling me I should set up in Panama. 
he's telling me I should set up in, in Uruguay or in, you know, Singapore, because that's their tax effective, tax efficient jurisdictions. My answer to that is Singapore may, may be great if you're, you know, an Indian entrepreneur raising capital in that market. It doesn't make sense in Latin America. And Panama and Uruguay don't make sense because they're not countries that a U.S. or international investor is going to be comfortable investing in just, be, just for the same reason that an international or U.S. investor is not going to be comfortable directly investing in a limitada. Um, why? Because they want predictable governance. They want to know that their rights as an investor are going to be protected. They want to know that their fiduciary duties as a board member, if they sit on the board, are going to be clear and well drawn out. And if, you know, if, if the proverbial, you know, SHIT hits the fan, they want to know, okay, well, I have a predictable way of resolving this dispute. And unfortunately, there's many countries out there that offer tax advantages, but few can offer the advantages of predictability that Cayman or Delaware offer. So just kind of recapping, uh, it sounds like you mentioned at the end, Cayman and Delaware are the kind of primary uh, holding company structures that make the most sense for all those reasons you just mentioned in terms of predictability. So are those the, the two exclusively you know, places where, you know, you should have your holding company set up down the line here. If you're Brazil, what's the optimum structure? Uh, assuming you're just raising a small, you're just starting, you're raising a seed round, your operations are there, your customers are there. Walk me through what you would do. Um, and then let's maybe take another couple countries in, in LATAM, the rest of LATAM and, and see how it, how it stacks up. Yeah, the good news is over the last five years, I would say for Brazil and also much of Latam, the world is converging on a typical holding company structure of a Cayman holding company. Below that is a Delaware LLC or limited liability company. And below that is the operating company in Brazil, the Limitada in your example, or a SAS in Colombia or, or a SAPI in Mexico. As you build out other markets for that business, you can set up other subsidiaries beneath the LLC. And let's take that structure and let's unpack it a little bit. So Cayman we talked about is, is a really tax efficient place. There's no corporate tax. There's no shareholder tax. And it's also predictable and it's modeled as corporate laws off of Delaware. So you can do a safe financing. You can do an ESOP plan. You can do preferred shares all in a Cayman structure that more or less looks quite familiar to Delaware. Um, so it's got a lot of advantages and it doesn't come with the headaches of certain other tax jurisdictions such as the Netherlands or Switzerland require you to hire local directors there to have board meetings on their soil to incur a lot of administrative costs that for a startup just can be quite burdensome. Cayman eliminates a lot of that. Yeah, there are maintenance costs for a Cayman entity just like there are for a Delaware entity. You've got to budget that, but they're quite low as an overall framework. Um, below the Cayman entity sits the LLC, which we call an intermediate holding company. And below that sits the Limitada. The Limitada is where the operations are. It's where your employees are. It's generally where your contracts with customers, suppliers, etc., are. There may be a few exceptions to that. And you want to make sure that that entity is protected because if there are liabilities, um, you know, slip and fall, injury, uh, gig economy worker issues, um, liability issues. To the greatest extent possible, you want to make sure that that subsidiary, the Limitada, 
is subject to the liabilities, but not the entire structure, not the LLC or the Cayman entity. It's why you have three separate entities to protect the integrity of that structure. The LLC in between, you may ask, well, why do I need that? It serves a couple of reasons. One is flexibility on an M&A exit. It gives you one more way to sell because the LLC can sell the, the assets or the, or the shares of the Limitada, or you can sell at the Cayman level. In both cases, it's tax efficient because the LLC also has no corporate tax, just like Cayman does, doesn't have. And in some cases, Corner Shop is a good example. The LLC provided disclosure advantages. So Corner Shop, in its first uh, sale process with Walmart, that ultimately didn't happen, they had an antitrust review, which is pretty typical of larger transactions. And the antitrust authority in Mexico um, sent over its request list of documents that they wanted to see, all typical stuff. But when you start to unpack that request list, they wanted things like the governance documents and financial statements of all VCs that hold over a certain percentage, which included in Corner Shop's case, Excel, and Jackson Square, two Silicon Valley funds. They were both like, no way are we going to share with a non-U.S. regulator our governance documents and our financial statements. We don't even do that in the U.S. We are not going to do that. That's a deal breaker for us. And what happened was um, we were able to, to structure that transaction as a sale of the LLC instead of the Cayman entity. And the antitrust Authority only looked one level up. So they basically said, we need this information for the owner of whatever entity is getting sold. So if, if it's Cayman, we need the entity above that. We need the investors. If it's the LLC, we only need the information for Cayman, for the, for the, for the company. And we're like, okay, great. Well, we can do that. That's a lot easier. Amazing. Okay, cool. That makes a lot of sense. So that, that explains the LLC in the middle there. And I usually think about it as like a pass-through entity, but it also has other advantages. That's right. Uh, you know, and, and those are, I've never, never thought about that before. So when we, when we look at um, other markets, so is it the same then as in, in Mexico and Colombia? You know, we talked about the Limitada. Is there anything different or is it the exact same structure applies across the region? You know, where you have this Cayman at the top as the, the hold company, and then you have yeah. the Delaware LLC and then the local operating company. Is that the same everywhere? It is, although there are slight differences in each country, and I don't profess to be an expert in every country in Latin America. I, I work in some of the larger markets. There are slight nuances. So Mexico recently adopted a new tax reform and now applies an additional 10% tax on founders who are Mexican taxpayers in the corner shop type of Cayman LLC entities. That's a recent change. You know, other countries could adopt similar changes. There's ways to structure around it, and it's but it still, I think, is the best structure for most, most countries. I would say in certain countries or certain situations, there can be sensitivity to Cayman. Cayman is, a, in Spanish, a paraiso fiscal. It's a tax haven, right? So it is viewed in a certain light in certain uh, ways in Latin America, family offices, uh, funds that have raised capital from government entities, may view Cayman and say, look, I just, I'm not able to invest in Cayman. It's got too much political risk for me, too much reputational risk. And, and that, that is a real issue for, in some deals. And so what we've done in a few examples, and I wouldn't necessarily recommend this as plan A or plan B, is we've used the UK as an alternative. 
So I've got several clients that have UK holding companies because the UK also has pretty good tax rules, has pretty good governance and predictability, but doesn't have that stigma of being a tax haven. Got it. And let's talk a little bit about intellectual property and, you know, what are the pitfalls that entrepreneurs should be aware of that they should be kind of thinking about? Yeah. Classic area of that an investor will focus on. And what you really want to make clear is that the company that you've set up owns its intellectual property and that there's no issues of, you know, somebody coming in and, and having done some work for a company in its first couple of months and then leaving and, and maybe can't, you can't get a hold of that person. I'll give you an example. We, um, about five years ago, flipped a company. In this case, it was from Spain, but the principles apply. That company had been around for several years in Spain. It had had 40 or 50 people develop its IP. It was flipping because Kleiner Perkins and some other U.S. investors were investing in a Series B round. They were putting 30 or $40 million to work. And they asked the company, look, tell us the names of everyone that's developed your IP and provide uh, what we call intellectual property assignment agreements or what are called PIIAs, yep. provide signed copies of all these documents so we can make clear that you know, everyone is assigned their rights that, that, that they developed to the company. And what they had done, and, and in Spain at this time, it wasn't common to get these agreements in place with every single member of your team. Maybe top developers, your top engineers signed them, but not everybody. And in their case, they'd had maybe 10 or 12 people do work years prior that had never signed those agreements, but they were, it was valid work that was still being used. And the VC was like, look, sorry, we need you to get those agreements signed by, by Juan Perez, who left two years ago. And you can imagine the difficulty that a founder has going knocking door two years later when they really have no incentive. They may not hold any equity in the company at that point. They have no incentive to sign this piece of paper that says, hey, everything I developed two years ago is owned by the company. So, so ultimately, I mean, there's ways around it. It can be messy, but you've got to be diligent about getting every person who works for your company to sign that type of agreement. The U.S. investor generally treats IP very broadly. Some people think of IP as, hey, it's just code. It's just patent. It's just trademarks. It's something I can register. The reality is that's not only what IP is. The U.S. investor thinks of IP as incredibly broad. Know-how, customer lists, marketing lists, anything of value in your or my head should be, belong to the company. While I'm working for the company, I, I should be assigning that to the company. And so even you know, a U.S. startup, Classic example is everyone from CEO down to secretary and office receptionist signs those agreements. And the same standard generally gets applied to a Latin American startup as well. Got it. And what about freelancers? Are they included in that as well? They are. Yeah, they are. So you, th this is where it can get interesting, right? Where as a cost saving um, measure, you may want to use freelancers. You may want to use you know, a dev, t a dev shop in Serbia that's a third of the price of what you would pay in Silicon Valley or Sao Paulo. And, and so you've got to be thoughtful about making sure you have the right agreement in place. The, the dev shop can work fine, it, it, you know, very valid from an economic perspective, but you want to make sure that everything developed by that dev shop flows to 
that that you're fundraising for, um, and, and it's ultimately controlled by by the company. I'll, I'll take it one step further because we were just talking about the corporate structure that you typically use for fundraising: Cayman LLC, Limitada, or local subsidiary. Um, in that case, you may ask, well, which entity of those three should own the IP? Generally speaking, the IP sits at the level of the, the local subsidiary, the Limitada in our example. And that's usually where the developers are. If there are, are freelancers, if there's a dev shop in another country used, you also want to make sure that the IP flows to the entity that owns the IP from other people as well. Eventually, companies that get more mature, that they grow and they get more sophisticated, they may want to think about creating an IP company, an entity that its only purpose is to own IP and license IP out to other entities within the same group of companies. I think that's too, that's too that's overkill or too sophisticated for an early stage company. So we don't often see it, but at some point, it's, it's something to think about. And so PIIA, proprietary information. Assignment agreement. Assignment agreement, okay. Is the name of that document, uh, should it be in the name of the, the local subsidiary then? People sign that document in the name of the subsidiary where, yeah. they're, where they're employed. Yeah, that's right. And what we've done in, in several places in Latin America is we've created a dual column, Portuguese English or Spanish English yeah. version of that document. It's governed by the local laws. It's reviewed by a local lawyer to make sure it's kosher, um, and it is in the name of the local subsidiary. But it, so that's great. So then it's enforceable in Brazil. It's reviewed. It can be reviewed by a U.S. lawyer representing Sequoia when they're investing in that company. It looks and feels like a U.S. style document, but it and it does what it do, needs to do in Brazil. Yeah, got it. When we think about you're starting a company, um, investing is a thing that comes up oftentimes. Uh, you know, for founders and employee shares, you know, what exactly does that mean? And what are the best practices around this from what you've seen? Yeah, so vesting is another area that's a focus of investor due diligence. It's something you got to be thoughtful about. Vesting basically means if my shares are, vest are subject to vesting, I've got to continue to work for the company over four years, typically, or three years until I get 100% uh, right use that equity in the way that I want to. Um, so vesting can apply to both founder shares or restricted shares, and it can apply to the options. With an option, I don't own the equity. I have to work for the company and then vest in my option and then exercise the option, paying money for the strike price of the option, and then I own the shares. With founder shares or restricted shares, I own the shares, but I may not be able to do everything that is typical until I've vested in those shares. So in both cases, it requires a contractual agreement that is signed by the company and the person receiving the equity, acknowledging the vesting terms. This is one area where um, less creativity is better. So there's a lot of standardization around vesting. In, in Silicon Valley, and I think this would generally apply in much of Latin America as well, the standard vesting schedule or term is four years. So the, the, the idea, the philosophy behind that is four years is a pretty good amount of time to know that this employee has created value for the company and will be able to monetize that equity at some point you know, thereafter. Sometimes in, in cases where 
a company takes longer to, to grow, that there may be additional equity with new vesting terms. But generally, four years is, that, is the schedule that is used to vest. And then you have what you oftentimes a cliff, where you don't vest as a new hire or a new employee until 12 months have elapsed. And the idea there is it's a trial period. You're in those first 12 months, you know, still finding your groove, still proving your value to the company. After 12 months, yeah, you, you've shown that you, you're a good valued member of the team and then you're gonna invest thereafter in equal monthly installments. That's usually the, the, the standard. And what's, that's what people refer to as a four-year cliff, four-year vesting schedule with a one-year cliff. I'm talking here about rank and file employees, like standard employees. Founders are in a different bucket, right? Founders are there at the beginning. They're taking the highest amount of risk. They're getting the most amount on the cap table. Generally speaking, for founders, you don't have a cliff. You don't have a, a trial period. The idea being you guys are in it, you know, you, you, you're kind of demonstrating value from day one. You don't need a trial period. But you do have the need for vesting as founders. And if, Brian, if you're founding a company with Thomas, and Yuri, and the three of you are in it together, even if you guys are lifelong friends and you went to you know, kindergarten together, you know each other through thick and thin, you're still gonna wanna have, have vesting on your shares to protect each of you vis-a-vis -vis the others and vis-a-vis -vis the company as a whole. Why? Because we've all, we, we have seen situations where the three founders go in it, they don't create vesting on their shares, they own their shares outright, and then nine months later, either something happens to one's health or, or somebody's life situation changes. They go off to the Himalayas and you know, meditate. They're no longer creating value for the company, but without vesting, if their shares are fully vested, they've just walked away with all of their equity, which can be a significant amount for a founder. So our, our advice for really every startup situation is make sure the founding team and the rank and file have vesting on their equity. No, it makes sense. I've seen that happen in companies that I've invested in where I've got the cap table and I'm like, hey, where is this 25%? And they're like, oh, that's, you know, this person, they're not here anymore. And that, that actually really dramatically affects fundraising because an investor really wants to ensure that those that are operating and generating the value have, a, you know, the a lion's share of the equity in their hands. So they're incentivized. So I, I totally agree. When we, you know, we think about international VC funds, you know, what are they looking for when pitching for, let's say, a, a seed round or, or a Series A financing? What are they typically looking at? Yeah, you just raised a really important point in your last comment, and I want to I make it clear. One thing that international US VCs are looking for is a properly calibrated cap table. And what I mean by that is, the equity ownerships are aligned with the value creation that the investor and that others perceive. In your example of 25% owned by someone who's no longer contributing to the company, unfortunately in Latin America, occurs far too often. There's various reasons for why it occurs. And you know, without casting blame or, or normative judgments, it, it becomes a real handicap to even a great company that, ha that checks so many of the other boxes in terms of traction and team and, 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 and market. If they have a cap table that's aligned with what a VC is expecting, that can be fatal to the fundraising process. 
Why? Because VCs are busy. They're getting tons of deal flow for the most part. They don't want to step in and clean up a cap table when there's, you know, dozens of other opportunities that don't have those issues that they can invest in. There are exceptions, right? And, and if the deal is so, so hot, they may do it. But for the most part, it really becomes a handicap. And so what do you have to do as a founder to be thoughtful around that? One is try to model with an Excel or, some, or, or, or a tool that Latitude 4 will provide the ownership of the company, not just on day one or day 60, but through multiple successive rounds of, of funding with assumptions, right? I'm going to raise a 10 million Series A. I'm going to do this and that. You can model out with a fairly good degree of accuracy what your cap table will look like. And I, I see far too founders do that with integrity. And, and I see a lot of founders go to multiple accelerators or startup programs that take their 5%, their 7% along the way. Maybe they do the, the post-money safe financing um, that popularized, and then they end up raising more than they thought they were gonna raise, which all sounds great because they're getting good traction. And then when it comes time to raising their, their first priced round, their first preferred round, you know, they've got dozens of safes converting at fairly low caps and suddenly, you know, their cap table is decimated. I had, I had a deal recently with, with Kazik and a great founder, young founder, I think he's like 21, 22, first time founder, had gone through YC, you know, and then was raising his first price round. And I think he was raising like uh, four or five million dollars and had four or five million dollars of safes that had previously been raised and under fairly you know, low terms. When we got to the actual conversion and showing him what the cap table looked like post Series A, he was decimated and he, and he really truly was surprised. He hadn't fully modeled it out and thought it out. We, we were not involved in earlier phases of that company. And so, you know, poor guy ended up with probably 40% less equity than under normal circumstances he would have had. Um, so I see that a lot. And, and in Latin American and developing markets, you know, you really have to be thoughtful about making sure the equity is, each equity that you raise is, is, is modeled and, and valued appropriately. Yeah, no, that's, that's, a, that's a great point. Giving the tools and people, you don't want to be caught by surprise when you're, you know, you think you've raise some money and you think you own this much of the company, but it's one of the, the challenges with safes or, or any kind of convertible note is that, you know, you've got to do the math and understand what the implications are. And, and sometimes that doesn't happen. You just think about the money and you don't think about the consequences of what it looks like. Exactly. One corollary to that as well on day one, if you're a founding team, let's say a founding team of three, the temptation in that, in that moment is let's say, you know, you've got a CEO, CTO, and, and chief marketing officer. Um, and you guys are all relatively same in terms of seniority, stature, and you're all gonna be full time. The temptation in that fact pattern is to grant everybody a third, a third, a third, or you know, slice the pie equally. Try to avoid that temptation if truly you know, one of you or, or maybe two of you is gonna be contributing more value than others. Generally speaking, the CEO um, has the highest equity stake because that person's leading all functions of a company. That person's the public face. That person's usually leading fundraising. And a VC, when they come on board later, 
they're going to expect the founding team to have done the, the, the hard conversations and the thought around yeah. making sure the equities align with what true value is going to be created. Not to say that cut that you do on day one, there's, there's opportunities to re-slice the pie if, in fact, one of you ends up creating more value. And there's opportunities to re-up the founder pool. This is a, a, another aspect. I don't want to dwell on this too much, but it's a corollary to the dilution point we talked about for founders. Um, dilution generally you know, is, is continual through a company's lifespan, right? It's only, you're only going to get more diluted as a founder, generally speaking. The exceptions to that are um, when you can do a founder refresh. So if you're a well-performing company, you're raising institutional VC money along the way, Series A, maybe a Series B, um, you oftentimes have leverage as a founding team to ask the new investors to request a founder refresh. Founder refresh, that means refreshing or increasing the equity that's allocated to the founding team in addition to what you guys got as founders on day one. Usually that takes the form of an option pool increase and a portion of that option pool increase that gets allocated to the key founders, key management team, et cetera. Um, it's a tool in the founder toolkit to help offset the dilution from a new fundraising round. Keep it in the back of your mind. It's not always available, um, but for well-performing companies, including in Latin America, I've seen it adopted in the last couple of years and it's very helpful. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, particularly if there's a founder that maybe got overly diluted early on and is executing extremely well, it's usually in the best interest of the investor to make sure that they're, you know, you don't want a founder that's excellent and has a very small equity and is just thinking about opportunity cost. Um, you know, that's, that's not a smart thing for, for a founder. Yep. Speaking of, you know, equity founders, one thing that I'm, you know, seeing a little bit more and, you know, I, I wouldn't say it's common, but uh, you know, sometimes there's some secondary that's taken off the table. You know, talk a little bit more about secondary. Is that something that you're seeing? How should founders think about that? At what point? What's yeah. the right amount? Like, how would you advise on that? Yeah, that's a great question. It's something that we saw a fair amount in 2019 with SoftBank and other later stage investors writing larger checks, um, higher value deals. I would say now in the post-COVID world, I think we're going to see fewer of those deals. Mm -hmm. um, secondaries, generally speaking, are a way to get interim liquidity before that exit, as you're saying. I think as a founding team, it makes sense in a certain type of scenario. For example, you're a founder. I've got a company that was formed in Argentina um, in 2010. And it's in the enterprise software space. It's done well. It's raised, you know, I think uh, through Series C. And at the Series B round, six years after formation, the founders had been, they'd all started, they all had expenses. They'd been underpaying themselves, as founders often do, right? Below market salaries. Sure. When they had great credentials, they, their, their buddies were at you know banks or or, or airlines or, or other companies that were making three times what they were making in cash compensation year after year, and they had been doing that for the company. Yes, they had significant equity stakes, but those equity stakes hadn't been monetized yet and would not be monetized until an exit. Typically, in that example where the founders you know needed to provide for their families and their wives or their significant others, their their, their partners were like, look, you know, I. 
we need to start providing for our family here. I think it makes sense for the founding team to come to the lead investor in that deal and say, look, I want to take a little bit of money off the table, not to grow wealthy and kick it on the beach, but really just to, to take away some of that lifestyle stress that as a founder, I have to deal with day in and day out. Right. So yeah. a different scenario and different lifestyle needs. But generally speaking, if it's, you know, one to $5 million in a $50 million round or more where that company has been around for, you know, six or, or more years, that's an argument that, uh, that most VCs in, in an up market it with a good company will understand and be sympathetic to. That's been the case in, in Silicon Valley for many, many years. I remember doing Dropbox as Series B deal and there was a large secondary component to that in like 2011. And we've seen it in, in Latin America recently. Having said all that, it's a function of, of a market that's fairly pro-founder, right? And sure. with the new funding environment that we're going to be in and, and you know, capital being a little bit more scarce, yeah. even good companies, I think we're going to see less of it. But if you have a really good set of facts, then, you know, as a founder, you should try to make the ask. Sure, yeah. I mean, taking a little bit off the table to kind of have a more stability so you can think long term is something that it was a big release for me when I had went from having zero liquidity to putting a little bit of money just in the bank. And then it allowed me to kind of, you know, rethink about where I'm going to go and not worry about my current current situation. So yep. I think it would be, be important. So speaking of kind of M&A, let's wrap it up here with, you know, two, two questions. One challenge in Latin America has been exits and we haven't seen a ton of exits. Uh, we'd mentioned Corner Shop, you know, earlier on in the conversation. I think that's a good example of an incredible success story. You know, what can you share uh, on any exit deals that you've been a part of or your experience that can help LATAM startup founders, uh, you know, think about M&A in, in the future? Yeah, I think it's the linchpin of this market continuing to grow. And you're, you're hitting it on the head. There have been so few M&A exits that return venture returns that get U.S. or international investors excited. The good news is that's changing. Obviously, you know, you're, you're associated with, with that type of deal, the corner shop deal. We're working on another deal that will be impactful. There's going to be more to come as the world wakes up to the, to the market size and technology disruption and talent that exists in Latin America. I will say it is very, very challenging. It's very challenging to exit a business in the U.S., which is a, a developed market. It's even more challenging to exit a business in Latin America for a variety of issues. We talked about antitrust. Antitrust has been a huge issue for Corner Shop. Why? Because they operate in several markets, and those, mar and those markets have antitrust regulators that in many cases have never seen an e-commerce deal. They're educating themselves on like basic principles of e-commerce. Sure. And when you're doing that in a world where the velocity of a deal is, is great, there's a lot of risk in a deal, markets change in a heartbeat, you've got competitors who are lobbying to kill that deal because they're fearful of the deal, and you're trying to educate the regulator on what, on what e-commerce is and how to define comp competitive market, it's incredibly challenging. And, I, I will just say that I, one of the most exciting things for me about Latin America in the next five and 10 years is I, I see the potential for enormous exits. And I, what I really get excited about at some point, I don't see it imminently, but at some point, I think that um, 
Latin American businesses, the incumbents in Latin America, right? The, um, the, the, the Grupo Carso's of the world, and you know, the large multinational Falabella, et cetera, they're gonna start to, they've already started to, and will continue to do tech buys. And, and when they start to do tech buys and when there's a generational shift to digital natives, family members of those businesses that are running things, you're going to see more M&A activity. Maybe they're not going to pay them the premiums that U.S. or international buyers will pay. But if the deal is competitive enough and they need the technology enough, they will start to pay better multiples, which will increase the buying universe. And I, I really want to see that. I don't think that's going to happen in, in a year or two, but over the next decade, I, I, I see it happening. No, that's great. Yeah, I mean, it's a big market. There's a lot of incumbents in kind of traditional businesses that have a lot of cash and, you know, probably realize the importance of technology. So if I asked this question to you uh, six months ago, uh, you probably would have, you know, had a different answer. We wouldn't have been able to predict where we are today. But if I said 2019, what's 2020 going to be like? would have been hard to know where we are. But let's take a little longer term and, and let's take a, a three to five year perspective. What do you think the evolution of the, the LATAM tech ecosystem will, will look like? Uh, give me your, your thoughts on that. Look, I think 2020 is going to be a tough year uh, globally. We're already seeing that, right? And, and until we get a vaccine or line of sight to better health news, it's going to continue to be a struggle for, for the globe. Having said all that, technology is extremely well positioned in many areas to benefit from this pandemic. The pandemic is going to accelerate what we're already seeing in terms of, uh, of communication tools like Zoom, in terms of online education, in terms of telehealth, uh, in terms of e-commerce. Corner Shop's business has been growing you know, through the roof in the last three months. So all of the, those trend, secular trends that we saw before the pandemic that are benefiting from working from home and, and being at home are going to only accelerate. And people's confidence level, I remember talking to people in you know, 2012 about e-commerce. They're like, no, I'm, I'm scared to give my credit card information. I'm scared to like, buy something and then you know, get assaulted if I go pick it up. That's all gone by the wayside. And because people are confident in purchasing online and, and engaging in commercial transactions online, that confidence level is growing in this pandemic and is only going to continue to grow. So I'm actually really optimistic about technology benefiting from the pandemic. What's challenging is investor sentiment, right? Because there is so much unpredictability in the world right now and FX rates and political uncertainty. And, you know, in addition to the health, until we see more certainty in a lot of those areas, investor sentiment's gonna be choppy, um, but good deals are gonna happen. Good deals are still happening right now. We're still seeing term sheets for, for deals. I think a lot of the deals this year are gonna be on the earlier stage side. You're gonna see fewer $100 million Series C and Series D deals. Obviously SoftBank is having its own challenges, but, but three to five years out, I see a resumption of growth and a long-term trend where it's inexorable that technology is going to grow. I agree. And, and my perspective is I take a kind of a 10-year look at these things anyway. So if, you've, if you look at it from the long-term, you know, that lens of the long-term, then both of us have been working in Latin America for, you know, over a decade. And so we've already been through a bunch of different cycles. This one might be particularly tough. Uh, we'll see. But Latin America tends to like, you know, go up really fast and go down really fast. And so... But if you're thinking of the 10-year of the horizon, you're going to be fine. And 
it's, it's the best time to start a company. I mean, Viva Rao was started during the last recession and, uh, you know, it creates the right DNA for the company. You know, you're, you're, you're scrappy, you're, you're making things work and there's a lot of available talent. So you've always got to find the silver lining. I think that's what great entrepreneurs do. Yeah, totally agree. Valuation is going to come back to a more accessible level for many investors and great companies are going to be formed. Absolutely. Great. Well, hey, Dan, thank you so much. Uh, appreciate the partnership with Gunderson and uh, excited to kind of build this next era and generation of companies. So great to have you on the, the show. Thanks, Brian. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Latitude Podcast with Dan Green, partner at Gunderson Detmer. Each week, we'll be talking to some of the top founders and investors in Brazil and Latin America. So be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts and check out Latitude.com for more content on building, scaling, and raising venture capital. I'm your host, Brian Reckworth. Until next time.